Last week we started this series in Revelation. Uh, we looked at uh, the beginning of John's dream vision, which he introduces us to the idea of the seven stars, the seven lampstands, and the seven churches. And today we transition into the seven letters. This interesting little uh, sidebar of sorts in Revelation where chapters 2 and 3 give us these seven letters, one, each, one to each of the seven churches, and they're really quite short. They're really just postcards, um, and they all follow the same basic structure. Uh, they address the unique situation that each of, the each of these seven churches is facing, and collectively we get a strong sense of what is happening for the church throughout the Roman Empire. We're beginning this morning with the most familiar of all of the churches with the postcard to Ephesus. We are very familiar with Ephesus. It shows up in Acts, of course, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and uh, young Timothy as a preacher is first um, commissioned in Ephesus. Paul works in Ephesus. Timothy works in Ephesus. John works in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila were in Ephesus. There's even some evidence that Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to Ephesus and spent the remainder of her life there with John. Why is Ephesus such a huge focus? Well, for starters, Ephesus was a world-class city. It's the seat at this point, the seat of Roman government in Asia Minor. And so in a sense, it is representative of what's happening to all the churches in Asia Minor. It is one of the largest Mediterranean cities. Some historians estimate as many as 250,000 people may have lived in Ephesus, which is not huge by today's standard of cities, but given the infrastructure of the day, it's a simply enormous number of people. It is the western end of the Royal Road or the Silk Road. So it is a center of trade. All of the goods coming from the east come to Ephesus and load on ships at the port of Ephesus to be distributed to Greece, to Rome, and really throughout, uh, throughout the Roman Empire. There are other roads that leave from Ephesus that go to all the other parts of Asia Minor. Ephesus boasted two agoras. Now, an agora is essentially a town square. It's a big open square, usually with a colonnade around the outside. Here you can see the remains of the main agora in Ephesus. Uh, the ruins at Ephesus are still uh, very impressive, um, largely because the the uh, harbor at Ephesus silted in and turned into a swamp, and the mosquitoes were so bad that they moved to the whole city a couple of miles away. And uh, so where normally ruins like this would have been pillaged to, to use for other structures and other buildings, these were pretty much left alone. And so the ruins at Ephesus are still a very impressive tourist attraction today. Uh, these two agoras, one was for state business and the other one was essentially a marketplace. The one you're looking at here is the remains of the marketplace. And so commerce was a huge part. All of those goods 
coming from the east would be traded in this marketplace uh, before heading further west. Consequently, the Ephesians enjoyed a very high standard of living. Uh, between Roman investment and international trade, the Ephesians were quite wealthy. These, these things made their citizens uh, wealthy and prosperous. Aside from the marble-paved streets, there were at least six aqueducts providing fresh running water to Ephesus, which an ancient city of 250,000 people, fresh running water is a very important commodity. That water supplied, among other things, indoor toilets, which is quite unique in the ancient world. Uh, also, a series of bathhouses, fountains, and gardens around the city. Ephesus had two theaters. The Odeon, which was the small theater, it only seated 1,500 people. It was an indoor theater and was used primarily for plays. Then there was an outdoor theater that seated 25,000 people. It's largely considered the biggest uh, outdoor theater venue of the ancient world. And it also hosted plays, but later on it would also host uh, gladiator conquests and things like that as the Roman influence grew. It was also the home of the Library of Celsus. Library of Celsus, a very important early ancient library, uh, housed at one point about 12,000 scrolls, which, uh, you know, the average library today can easily have that many books, but in the ancient world, to accumulate 12,000 scrolls was quite a doing. Uh, and so this was a place of learning, a place of wisdom, uh, although wasn't all ideal. Immediately opposite the Library of Celsus was a very famous brothel. As a matter of fact, there was a tunnel leading between the two. So your higher calling and your lower calling were sort of connected. That was Ephesus. Ephesian culture centered around the temple of Artemis. Now, Ephesus had more than 20 pagan temples in it. So there's pagan worship of every variety that you can imagine. But none of these was more important than Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a very impressive structure. In fact, uh, some of the uh, observers at the time claimed that of the seven, this was the most impressive of the seven wonders. Now, Artemis of Ephesus is a little bit unique from Artemis everywhere else. Artemis is a Greek god, and it was worshipped throughout Greece, and uh, so there are temples and, and altars to Artemis in a variety of different places. Artemis at Ephesus is a little bit different because there had been, long before the Greeks came, there had been a shrine or a structure on this same temple site for hundreds of years, and that uh, shrine or temple was in honor of the regional fertility goddess. When the Greeks show up, they sort of associate this fertility goddess with their god Artemis and decide it's the same person. So Artemis in Ephesus takes on a very different character than Artemis everywhere else. It's primarily a fertility goddess, and whereas Artemis in the rest of the Greek empire is a virgin huntress. Uh, so different character, 
but she's got this amazing temple. Now, I say there's been something on that site for hundreds of years. Uh, there was something there for about 800 years total. The temple there, though, was destroyed at least twice. And it's the third temple of Artemis that is the one that exists at the time that Revelation is written. The third temple of Artemis is a very impressive structure. It is 450 feet long and 225 feet wide. So if you imagine a football field and add another 90 feet to the length and uh, another uh, 85 feet to the width, and there you have the size of the temple. The temple roof was held up by 127 columns, each of which was 60 feet high. Now, to give you some perspective, uh, the ceiling above me is about uh, 35 feet, 34, 35 feet above my head, so almost twice as tall as this room, just the columns, and then the roof structure on top of that with a big open section in the middle of the roof. It was a cedar roof structure, a big open section in the middle forming this open-air courtyard right in the middle of this very impressive temple. Now, the temple of Artemis was responsible for uh, sort of an economic boon to the area. Uh, there was a lot of tourism because of the temple there. People would come from all over the known world to pay tribute to Artemis in this temple, to visit the temple, uh, to see this wonder of the ancient world. And there was quite a trade in souvenirs. So you might remember the story in Acts where Paul gets himself into a considerable amount of trouble because he is calling the worship of Artemis into question and the local tradespeople begin to realize that these Christians are sort of, they're, they're gaining an ear in the community and it's going to affect our trade in these little souvenirs, these little idols that we make of Artemis that people buy when they visit. Uh, and so there's quite a, a ruckus about that. But beyond the trade in souvenirs, the Temple of Artemis also happened to be the local bank. So people would make tributary donations to Artemis, but they would also deposit their funds there to be protected in the Temple of Artemis. So this enormous edifice, in effect, becomes a bank as well. So they would take these deposits from people all over the world, wealthy people in the community and all around uh, the Roman Empire, and then they would lend out their money at very high interest rates, by the way. And so Ephesus was making bank on the Temple of Artemis. They're doing quite well. That is, in quick fashion, that is the context in which this letter to the Ephesians, this postcard to the Ephesians is written. And so we begin in Revelation chapter 2, the first three verses, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. You kind of get the sense here that these seven postcards are, are like those performance evaluations you sometimes have to do at work. And they all kind of open 
with an affirmation of the authority of Jesus, that, that he's the boss, and so he can make this evaluation. And then it talks uh, about what you're doing right, what, you, what you've done right. And here's the things that the Ephesians were doing right. The church had resisted false teachers. If you read through all the letters of the New Testament, you understand that the apostles are working very hard to keep the church on track. And it's not easy. They keep slipping into, they keep hearing these different false teachers and slipping into broken ideas and leaving behind the gospel of Jesus and Paul's chastising them all the time, trying to get them back on the straight and narrow. Well, understand this. When Revelation is written, that apostolic era is coming to an end. So these church conflicts that would come up, these debates and these, these, these foreign doctrines that would find their way into church life, there's not going to be anyone left to go to. The apostles were this authority that you could go to and they would clear up these questions that you had. And the apostles all recognized, look, we're not going to be around forever. So somehow we have to get this church on a solid footing so it doesn't lose its way when we're gone. Paul actually predicted all of this in Acts chapter 20. He's on his way uh, to Jerusalem. And he calls together the elders of the Ephesian church. And he gives them this warning. He says, look, when, when I leave, wolves are going to come among you. And they're going to they're try to teach you all these false doctrines. They're going to they're claim to have authority that they don't. And it's going to be a mess unless you really stay on top of it. And it seems as if the leaders took this to heart. Because according to this report, they tested and resisted those who claimed to be apostles, but were not. The church had also remained pure of paganism, and that is no simple task in a town like Ephesus. Because not only is paganism present, but all the cultural institutions, all of the uh, educational institutions, all of the economic institutions of Ephesus are actually rooted in pagan worship. It's all interconnected. It's almost impossible to escape. So beyond rejecting the obvious immorality of the Ephesian people, the Christians in Ephesus are, in essence, violating a sort of social code in Ephesus. And the Christians are viewed as a threat. They're viewed as disloyal to the things that Ephesians value and on a grander scale, disloyal to the things that Romans value. And Jesus adds this tag in verse 6. He says, but you have this in your favor. You, have, uh, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, which is very strong language. We don't have that much information historically or archaeologically about the Nicolaitans. And there's some debate about this, but based on the best information I could find and the context here, it seems the Nicolaitans were probably practicing syncretism. The syncretism is basically where I take the things of the faith and I mix them with other faiths, other faith systems. And so in this context, it would have been a matter of, of blending Christianity with various pagan practices and ideas. Now, the Greeks and the Romans were all about syncretism. This was normal to them. Part of, the re part of the way that they would keep peace in conquered territories 
is because the Greeks and the Romans had this pantheon of gods, when you've got dozens of gods, and your attitude is the more the merrier, you go into a new territory, and whatever god those people claim to worship, you say, oh yeah, we recognize that god too. That was syncretism. You just blend it all together. The problem with the Jews and the Christians, and the reason that they represented a threat to the empire, was this crazy idea that there's only one god. In claiming that there's only one God, they're essentially rejecting the entire pantheon, and this is what makes them problematic. They just couldn't get these Jews or Christians to accept that all these other gods were real. The temptation to adopt at least some minimalist pagan practice had to be absolutely immense. And your whole community is about honoring these pagan gods. The whole economic system, the educational system, the social pressure to in some way acknowledge these gods has got to be immense. And understand that the Christians were largely excluded from the prosperity and the privilege of Ephesus. Paganism is woven into the government. You have this whole cult of Caesar. Which Caesar is, is not just the leader, he's not just emperor, he's not just a king, he's actually God. He is divine. So you have that whole cult of Caesar, and then you've got this Artemis and all these other uh, uh, pagan deities that are being uh, acknowledged and, and worshipped in the city. And those things are woven into commerce. So it was very difficult to be a part of one of the trades if you weren't worshiping the god of that trade. And in the city of Ephesus, if you wanted to enter the agora, if you wanted to enter the marketplace, which is where most people made their living, you needed to take a pinch of incense and drop it in the incense burner in honor of Caesar as God. The pressure that the people must have felt to do that, that simple act that would grant them access to, to all of this prosperity, must have been very difficult to resist. And under the circumstances, for us, I think it would be easy to rationalize. But somehow, the Ephesians managed to be uncompromising in their commitment. They persevered. They endured this hardship. They have not grown weary. Now, if this was your performance evaluation, just as soon it ended right there. But it doesn't end right there. In uh, verses uh, 4 and 5, it says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So despite their qualities, the church had left its first love. Now we hear that phrase, first love, and we kind of associate it with some sort of wistful uh, junior high romance. That's not really what we're talking about. 
first in this context is a reference, yes, to the passion of new converts, but also about a primary position, a priority, what you love first, what you put first. And Jesus says that the church has left this or forsaken it. Not that they forgot it, not that they lost it, but that they left it, that there was a conscious choice, there was a will involved. It's not just worn off. And so the people are left doing all the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And this is a hard teaching. Because why do we care? We have laws on the books in this country that you shouldn't murder people. Now, some people maybe are not going to murder anybody because it's against the law, and some people are not going to murder people because murdering people is inherently bad. Do we care as long as they don't murder anybody? Why do we care why somebody follows the law as long as they follow the law? This was the assumption, really, before Christ, this was largely the assumption of the Jews. As long as we keep the law, regardless of the reason behind it, as long as we keep the law, we're in. We've got this covered. Jesus has this unreasonable expectation that you'll not only do the right thing, but that you'll do it for the right reason, you'll do it for the right motivation. The first and greatest commandment, he says, is that you will love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. What does that mean? It means emotionally, intellectually, and with my life, I will love God at least with 51% of my being. Oh, but that's, that's not what he said. He doesn't even say 75 or 99% of my being. He says, you'll love him with everything, with everything that you are. That is the most important. Everything else is founded upon this, he says. This is the foundation of all the rest of the law and all the rest of the prophets, that you would love the Lord your God. This is where it's all supposed to come from. This is a high calling. It is very easy to mitigate that calling. It's very easy to rationalize that calling. I mean, who does that, really? Doing the right thing, but without love, Jesus says, is cause for you to lose your lamp, to lose this lampstand that you have, this light that you are. That sounds pretty serious. In what you endure, your purpose is my mission, to be a light for my kingdom. Obedience is impressive, but without love, it isn't the light of my kingdom. We go back to Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 13, first few verses of that, letter, that uh, chapter says, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong, or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Because truth without love is actually callous and empty. It can be impressive in its obedience, but it is hopelessly rigid. And in the end, in the end, it's not about Jesus. In the end, it's about pride and religion. But we must also acknowledge that love without truth is shallow and fraudulent. It can be impressive in its long-suffering, but it is hopelessly pointless. In the end, it's not about love. It's about feeling good about ourselves while we avoid responsibility. The principle of first love, I think, is a full devotion to both truth and love. And that question question that Jesus has for the church at Ephesus. It's even even greater, really, than any question about their personal salvation. We tend to focus exclusively on personal salvation, but that's not even what this message is about. The greater question is, will you be the witness that I'm calling you to be for my kingdom? And without truth and love, you simply cannot be. And so the church was called to repent, to turn, and to return to its former motivation. Graduation weeks, I was thinking a lot about high school this week. Things have changed a lot, I think, from what I can pick up. When I was in high school, uh, I was in drama club. That was sort of my space. It was, uh, I wasn't a super popular student. I was well known, but not, not super popular. And drama club was the one exception. I was the hot shot, big fish in a small pond in drama club. And I was recognized by my peers and my instructors as being a really pretty good actor. I got some important roles in plays and did all that stuff and had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I had some limitations, though. I was offered, uh, at one point, I was offered at least to, uh, asked to consider a lead role in a play, and I turned it down because I believed that the script glamorized immoral behavior. I felt like I couldn't do it. I was also somewhat limited by the fact that I wouldn't curse, and a lot of scripts had curse words in them. I didn't make a big deal of it. I just changed the scripts. One time I had this reading with another young lady in my class who's a fr friend of mine. And we were supposed to do this reading, supposed to put this presentation on. And, and the script had the word hell in it. And it was clearly intended as a, uh, a curse word, you know, the way that it was written into the script. And I wouldn't say it. So, so I changed the script. Well, this friend of mine rode me mercilessly about this. She heckled me and was after me kind of, what's the big deal? Just say the word. Just say, and I steadfastly, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. Wouldn't do it. She heckled me so much, I sound like I'm making excuses for myself, 
But by the time we got to the time we were make the presentation in our class and we're going through the script, we got to that part of the script, and without thinking, the word just comes out of my mouth. Because I was literally angry with her at this point, and so it made sense, you know, for me to use this word. So after all of this protest, I get down to the moment, and now here I am doing exactly what she's challenging me to do and that I keep refusing to do. And I felt terrible. Now, you might look at that and go, you know, what is the big deal? You, you, you sound a little bit legalist there, Parks. What's, what's your problem? Well, understand this. The problem wasn't that I didn't believe in grace. The problem wasn't that I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going there because I said that. No, the, the, the problem was that I had compromised the witness that I attempted to create. You think, okay you still sound uptight. Okay. Well, here's the thing. I know it's small. I, I don't bring this story to you this morning so that I can show you what a grand kid I was in high school. I don't, I don't, I don't think that this is a, uh, such an important hill to die on. I tell you this story because it's a tiny thing, an insignificant thing, and at the end of the day, I couldn't even maintain that. I'm left wondering, what is it that is beyond compromise? Now, the Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians were a self-deprecating church. They created hardship for themselves by refusing to compromise. And I'm not sure taking a pinch of incense and dropping it into an incense burner on your way into the marketplace is any more significant in the grand scheme of things than saying hell in response to a script. But they refused to do it. They refused to be compromised in any way. And the fact that they refused to be compromised in any way without love is a subject of incredible wonder to me. I don't know how you maintain that not being driven by your heart. But they do somehow. I wonder, I wonder what's left. What moral stance, what Christian discipline, what ministry, what act of worship, what conviction do we hold that is not subject to compromise? I know faith is our priority. But there are other things, and rightly so. Faith is our priority, but, you know, family's a priority too. And, of course, work. Work's a priority. And school. And then there's all the extracurricular school-related activities. And then there's sports, and then there's clubs, and there's my general busyness, and then there's the occasional pandemic, and then there's just sort of catching up on sleep from all of that. What is it that is no longer subject to compromise? Or have we become enamored with the idea that as long as we're doing the right things, we won't have to face any compromises? We, we won't have to miss out on anything. The Christians in Ephesus understood 
that living for Jesus, at least in the short term, meant that things might not be better for you, they might be worse. Ephesian Christians do what they do remarkably without love. But Jesus does not instruct them to abandon their convictions and replace them with love. That's an either-or that we've sort of created for ourselves. Either we could be a people of conviction or we could be a people of love. No, he says, maintain your convictions, but undergird them with the love that you had at first. Return to your original motivation. Hold firm to the truth, whatever the cost is, and return to the love that motivated those decisions in the first place. And then verse 7, he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the victors, he says, to the victors are promised life and paradise. Now the Ephesian Christians must have spent a good part of their existence feeling like the outsiders looking in. Like everybody else in Ephesus had everything going for them, and we are afflicted by our own choices. Moral conditions are excluding them from the life and the wealth of the city. And Jesus says, look, if you overcome, if you maintain these convictions, but restore the love that is supposed to be behind and beneath them, you'll have the tree of life that's in paradise. Now that imagery would have immediately invoked Eden for them. But as we get further into Revelation, we'll see that it also is a picture of the new Jerusalem. This paganism that permeated Ephesus is centered at the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis is the most glorious pagan worship site that the ancient world had ever known. And at the center of it is a shrine to a tree. Because before it was a temple, it was just a tree. Tradition says the original tree was a cedar tree that was hollowed out. And the original idol of this, uh, this is pre-Artemis, the original idol of this fertility goddess was placed inside this hollowed out tree. And that was people's worship space for a long time. But later, after it becomes the temple of Artemis, Artemis is associated with a date palm tree because it's a fertility issue, symbol of fertility. And so people would go to visit Artemis and worship at the spot where this tree once stood. And so in this pagan culture, of this perfect worship place, the center of which is a monument to a tree. And Jesus says, you overcome. You hold fast. You stay true. And I will grant you access to paradise, to the city of God, which will be much greater than the temple of Artemis. And I'll give you access to the tree of life, which is immortality, which is much more than Artemis can ever promise you. But victory requires that we pursue truth and love 
without compromise. That is what Jesus does. That's the witness of his life, the witness of his ministry, the witness of his death, and the witness of his resurrection is that Jesus pursues with us love and truth without compromise. He will not fail. He will overcome the grave, and through him, we can do the same.